If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. The Bio Tapestry ranks as surely one of the most famous pieces of medieval artwork. Yet it's not actually a tapestry, and it probably wasn't made in Bayeux. It tells the story of the Norman Conquest, but misses out some crucial details, including two of the three big battles fought in England in 1066. It features sex and violence, myths and fables, and even has the hand of God. We don't know how it ends, but we do know that it's supposed to be coming to the UK on loan from Normandy at some point in the next few years. So now is the time to really get to grips with the tapestry story in our new History Extra podcast series, Unraveling the Biotapestry. Join me, David Musgrove, tapestry expert Professor Michael Lewis, and a panel of other leading historians, including Michael Wood and Janina Ramirez, for our exclusive five-part series. Available to listen to now at historyextra.com forward slash tapestry pod. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How violent was medieval life? And what sort of injuries did people suffer from? Well, Dr Jenna Dittmar of Aberdeen University is part of a research project at Cambridge University looking at hundreds of medieval skeletons from several cemeteries in the city. And their work has helped to answer some of those questions. Our content director, David Musgrove, caught up with Jenna to find out more. Jenna, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Um, You've been carrying out a study of medieval injuries uh, caused through skeletal trauma on skeletons uh, found in medieval cemeteries in Cambridge. So, it's fascinating. Can we just dry, dive straight into the methodology here? What sort of skeletons have you been looking at and uh, from where? Sure. So for this research, we analysed human skeletons from three different burial grounds located in medieval Cambridge. We had a number of individuals that came from a parish cemetery, uh, which is called All Saints by the Castle. 
the parish cemetery was the the normal burial place for the majority of the population during this time. Uh, Generally, we think the individuals buried at this site were living on the margins of, of the town, so they would have been engaged in both agricultural and rural activities, as well as as some activities in town. So they possibly were part-time farmers, but then also maybe worked in, in a trade. We looked at a number of individuals from an Augustinian friary. So this was a, a wealthy friary that was um, recently excavated by the Cambridge Archaeological Unit. Uh, Craig Sesford, who is one of the uh, one of the members of what we like to call the After the Plague Project, excavated that um, quite recently. And this cemetery had individuals that were members of the clergy, but also wealthy individuals uh, that would have been buried inside the church, usually after they made a substantial donation to the friary. And then we looked at a number of inmates from the Hospital of St. John the Evangelist, which was excavated again by the Cambridge Archaeological Unit, and it was located underneath the Divinity School building at St. John's College in Cambridge. So the inmates of this hospital would have been those members of society that needed care or looking after, uh, similar to a, a modern old age facility rather than an actual hospital. They were providing pastoral and spiritual care for the poor members of society uh, rather than medical care. Sure. Okay. So you've got um, uh, three sort of quite distinct sorts of groups of people potentially being buried in these different cemeteries. So it gives you a chance to look at, uh, at different ways of life, perhaps. Um, do, you, do you have a, a sense about the time scale in which people were buried here? We, t- we said it's medieval. What is What, what sort of um, period are, are these uh, cemeteries operating in? So the parish of All Saints by the Castle was likely founded between 940 and 1100, we can't be sure of the exact dates because the parish church that was associated with this burial ground hasn't been found. And that parish actually merged with a neighboring parish due to the amount of individuals that they lost during the Black Death plague pandemic. So that cemetery actually went out of use in 1365. The individuals from the Hospital of St. John the Evangelist were approximately from about 1,200 to 1,500. The burial ground there went out of use when they, uh, the college actually purchased the land to build the college on top of it in 1511. So the skeletons that were recovered from the Augustinian friary date to about 1279 to 1289 until the monasteries were uh, dissolved in 1538. Okay, so that gives you a, a nice um, uh, sort of spread of time across the medieval period um, through, throughout um, Cambridge there. And you, you mentioned that some of these cemeteries have been excavated recently. Have they all been excavated recently or are some of these remains been in, uh, been in storage for a while? The cemetery of the parish of All Saints by the Castle was excavated first in the 70s, then again in the 80s, and in the 90s, about 215 skeletons have been excavated through these various uh, projects. And they have been located since they, since excavation, really, in the Duckworth Collection at the University of Cambridge, and they have not been studied in a systematic way since they were, since they were excavated. More recently, the Hospital of St. John the Evangelist was excavated by the Cambridge Archaeological Unit. So Craig Sesford 
again, a member of this project was the uh, the head archaeologist on that excavation. And the Augustinian Friary, again, was relative, uh, was excavated in 2016 and 2017, so actually after the, the larger project started. But there was a previous phase of excavation at that site as well from 1908 to 1909. All of the skeletons that were analyzed for this research were excavated because they were in danger of being damaged by either new construction projects or renovation works. So um, we got a sense about uh, where these skeletons were were from and the time period. Um, and to be clear, you weren't involved in the excavation uh, side of things, were you? You're a um, you're a, 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 a skeleton an osteologist, a bone specialist. Is uh, that yes, right? that's correct. So I was initially a uh, a contract archaeologist in the U.S. Actually, but um, I am a biological anthropologist or a, a bioarchaeologist, so I had no role in these excavations. Um, all of these, of the Hospital of St. John and Augustinian Friary were both excavated by the Cambridge Archaeological Unit, and then the parish of All Saints by the castle was excavated actually before I was born. So, um, I, no, I had no role in, in any of these excavation projects. But what you have been doing is sitting in a laboratory, uh, looking at these bones and analysing them and trying to find out uh, well, injuries and, and cause of death potentially. And you've been looking specifically at uh, fracture injuries. This research project specifically was focused on the skeletal trauma, but also the lived experience of the individuals that lived in Cambridge during the medieval period. So this research project is actually part of a much larger project that has much a much wider scope. So this project or this research was undertaken as part of the After the Plague Health and History in Medieval Cambridge project. Professor John Robb is the principal investigator. The main aim of the project is to explore the physical, biological consequences of the Black Death pandemic to see how individuals changed as a result of, of that quite catastrophic event. So this is just a small part of, of a much larger research undertaking. Can you just give our listeners a sense about what you're actually doing in the laboratory to investigate these uh, these these bones? Absolutely. So we use a variety of methods to determine the age at which an individual died and we can also determine their biological sex by looking at different parts of the human skeleton. To analyze the fractures, we used plain x-rays and sometimes micro-CT imaging to examine the fractures so we can work out how a fracture would have occurred and what kind of consequences there would have been as a result. So we have to remember that in the medieval period, there wasn't any surgical intervention for these types of injuries. So often what happens is the bones will heal at a bit of an angle or there'll be some overlap and they won't be set properly. So there will be long-term physical consequences of these injuries. And this research specifically wanted to look at who was being injured, how they were being injured, and then future research will focus on what happened for the rest of their lives as a result of this injury. So, and, and you looked at um, a little over 300 um, skeletons, um, uh, and presumably not all of them had fractures, or were you just picking ones that had fractures when you when you did the investigation? Uh, no, we studied every adult individual that we had that was 
that was in relatively good shape. So unfortunately, what happens a lot of the time is that there's damage to a skeleton after it's was buried or 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 something that makes it um unable to be fully analyzed. So we picked individuals that were well preserved by looking at people from multiple different walks of life. We were really able to look at the differences between the groups, so where fractures were located and what types of everyday activities they could have been involved in that might explain why they were injured in a certain way. So what we found, which wasn't really that surprising with to any of us, was that fractures were most common among those that were buried in the parish graveyard. So 44% of the skeletons that we analyzed from that site had signs of what we call anti-mortem fractures, so fractures that occurred well before the individual died. We found far fewer fractures in in the Augustinian Friary and even fewer in the hospital, which was actually fairly surprising since I started analyzing the individuals from the hospital first, and I thought there was quite a high fracture prevalence rate. This was this occurred uh, a couple of years before I analyzed the other two sites, and it turned out to even be higher at the at the following two sites, which again was quite quite a surprise. So going back to the uh, to the first cemetery um, with the forty four percent rate, that that seems uh, that seems pretty high. I, I, I don't suppose um, have you got any sense about what if if you examined um, uh, like a cross section of society today, how many people would would have fractures in the in their bones in, during their lifetime? You got any idea about that? So I did a little bit of exploration of this again from the modern clinical literature, just to get an idea of 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 comparing these types of findings to to modern times. And it's probably surprising that in certain subsets of the population, so specifically people that are over the age of 55, it's really not that uncommon at all to have a fracture rate of 44%. So typically what we would do as osteologists is to divide up our findings by age category to really take into account things like osteoporosis or age-related bone loss, because as we know, as people age, they lose bone connectivity and your bones become much more likely to fracture as a result of a fall. So really, when we compared the individuals from this site to the modern clinical literature, there were still more fractures even in the older age categories. I think it was 59% of the individuals that were aged 45 and over, but it was mid 40% for modern day individuals. So really, it's so, uh, and and the the point you made about the uh, anti mortem fact, uh, fractures is um, is interesting um, because uh, you kind of, as you said earlier, you uh, you you think of the medieval period and you think, well, how did they deal with fractures with broken bones? They didn't have the the modern medical facilities that we have today. I saw. Um, I saw uh, a little while ago some somebody doing some uh, experimental archaeology and, and uh, built a sort of a wooden box around someone's leg and then had a wax plaster cast that went over it. Um, I have no idea if that is uh, an actual technique that was used. I mean, from looking at the from the from the from the bones, you can see whether a fracture is set well or not. Can you tell from the way that the bones have have, have, have reset uh, whether there had been any sort of medical intervention? 
this is a really difficult thing to answer by just looking at um, archaeological skeletons. Typically, we can't tell with a great amount of confidence if somebody did receive medical care or not. There are a number of historical medical texts, actually, that do outline that that do outline uh, how fractures would have been treated by physicians of the time. There's actually several quite well-known manuscripts that that we know to be present in Cambridge that discuss this. So some of these texts talk about immobilizing a leg by using a splint while the natural repair takes place. Sometimes they recommend using a a some kind of a shell to hold the leg together so it's not far off from what you described with the with the wooden uh, staves kind of holding a fracture in place they also do recommend things like using the brains of of dogs as an as an, as an example to kind of promote healing of an area so the the medical advice of the time did vary quite greatly and, and when you're when you're looking at these bones and uh, and the and the heel fractures, are you able with your um, with your specialist knowledge of of the skeletal structure to to um, to assess whether that person would have sort of in our in our parlance been carrying a disability after after their injury? Could, you know, are you able to tell whether somebody would have been walking with a limp or been unable to use their uh, their arm correctly and that sort of thing? This is actually some research that I am I'm working on right now using CT scan data that was generated by another member of the project, Bram Mulder. So what we did is we analyzed a number of fractures that we found at these three sites and did a biomechan- biomechanical assessment of the, the, the cortical bone tissue to try to determine just that, how somebody would have lived after they experienced an injury. So we have a paper that we focus on three individuals from from medieval Cambridge, and we do discuss exactly how their gait would have been altered as a result of the injury that they received. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We encounter something called the osteological paradox, which is a problem that unfortunately doesn't seem to have a solution. So an individual that died of the bubonic plague, for example, won't have any evidence of the disease on their skeleton. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. You've, you've been able to understand quite a lot about uh, the, the quantity of fractures, and uh, but we haven't talked about the type of fractures because you're able, when you look at these, these um, the, the skeletal remains, you're able to assess uh, how an injury might have occurred to somebody. So you use parlance like crush, stress, and break. So, so can you break that down for me a bit? How, how can, what, what can you tell about how a person was injured? So fractures are categorized based on modern clinical findings. So the direction in which the bone breaks, for example, is used to explore potential mechanisms that would have caused the bone to fracture. So we can use a spiral fracture as an example here. So a spiral fracture is one that kind of twists its way up the bone. And it's a very common injury that you see in football players where one foot remains planted and then they twist their body and this results in a spiral fracture that goes up the leg. It's also really important for our research to know if healing was present or not. So a fracture will be classed as either antemortem, which means it occurred before death, postmortem, which means it occurred after death, or perimortem, which means unfortunately we can't really tell. So so when an injury occurred in an individual's life can be really difficult to determine if all the fractures are very well healed. But there are some fractures that will result in growth being arrested, for example, so that we can tell that the bone was broken before an individual reached skeletal maturity, so during childhood or adolescence. And there were certainly some individuals in our sample that we can tell were injured at a very young age, but they survived their injury, they healed, and they went on to live full lives. You picked ones that were specifically adult skeletons rather than uh, childhood, and so your your division is from uh, age twelve onwards, and you were able to ascertain that because you can uh, you can use um, uh, osteoarchaeological techniques to, uh, to 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 age bones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what can you tell me about the the sort of injuries? What sort of hazards were people um, coming across? So, the type and pattern of the skeletal trauma that we observed largely represented injuries that were sustained through accidents or occupational-related activities. We did have a number of individuals in this study that we have classed as being the working poor. So these were the individuals that, again, would have been responsible for most of the manual labor in the town, but also worked in the surrounding fields. So These individuals would have been working with large animals, would have been plowing fields, or they could have been working in specialized trades such as carpentry or um, stonemasonry. There were a number of other people that worked in in crafts, including potters and, and, and things like that as well. So most of the population, certainly in this study, would have been working in their hands, performing performing manual labor, and they would have been at risk of injury just from everyday life. But this research also showed that those serving in religious orders were certainly not impervious to physical injury. So 
we have a number of individuals that were friars in this study that had evidence of experiencing a very severe accident and even interpersonal violence. So one of the friars in this study had a very tragic end to his life. There was evidence that he broke his neck as well as he simultaneously fractured both of his femurs. Um, when this was very likely a lethal accident that possibly resulted from being hit by a cart or something similar. The pattern of injuries that he had was very similar to what we see on modern day pedestrians that are hit by moving vehicles. And so, so um, we, we talked a little bit about the different cemeteries earlier. Um, uh, and you might imagine, um, thinking about the Middle Ages from a, a superficial level, I guess, that, uh, you know, the, the clerical orders, the friars living a, a nice contemplative life. I suppose friars weren't specifically doing that, but, 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 but a more peaceful life and therefore less likely to uh, to undergo injury did you see that through the through the different cemeteries so you said that you know the 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 urban poor they had the higher um, percentage of fractures uh, than the than the than the friary so can you th- apart from the old example would it be fair to say that those the man- the laboring manual workers uh, were suffering more fractures than than other other sectors of society In general, yes, I would say that the working poor certainly did appear to have more skeletal injuries than their counterparts. But the number of fractures that we see in the hospital, I think, is particularly surprising because most of the inmates that would have been living in the hospital would have also been members of what we what we are terming this kind of working poor class. And they would have been admitted to the hospital because they required pastoral or spiritual care. But most of these individuals, we aren't exactly sure when they would have been entered into the hospital. So it is very likely that they spent much of their life working in the fields or in a specialized trade before they were admitted into the hospital. And we found very relatively few fractures in those individuals than we did in those from All Saints by the Castle. So we don't think that people were being admitted to the hospital because they were injured in this way. There's actually a very high rate of other pathology on the remains from the St. John's skeletons, which lends weight to the argument that those that were buried there were less likely to have been fit enough to undertake much manual labor. And we specifically see this in the remains of the women that were buried there women in the hospital had far fewer fractures than did women that were buried in the All Saints Parish Cemetery. So the differences between the Hospital of St. John the Evangelist and All Saints Cemetery was surprising since these individuals were were, were mostly classed as being from the same group. They would have all been members of the working poor. So the difference between the two sites in fracture prevalence rates likely doesn't reflect a socioeconomic difference, but it probably reflects those individuals that would have been working, actively working throughout their entire life versus those that would have been buried in the hospital who were poor, needy, and often had long-term chronic diseases. So they may have been unfit to work. So um, 
so your research is specifically looking at the fractures. Um, you, you, you've you've mentioned disease and other things. You you haven't been looking for evidence of anything other than fractures in this particular piece of work. Um, so uh, so does that mean that we're you know there's is there another piece of work that could analyze that and could inform us about whether whether disease was uh, was was a big uh, cause of death as well? Yes, absolutely. So my role on this project was primarily to assess the health of the people that were part of this project. So fractures and trauma specifically fall under the umbrella of of, of health, certainly in um, in the archaeological fields. So there is a lot of work left to be done on these sites, and there will be many other publications as a result. Uh, I think it is important that we don't separate the two out too far because as everyone knows there are a number of 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 health factors that will cause people to be more at risk of fractures. So we've already talked about um osteoporosis and age as being one of the things that predisposes people to fracturing bones, but there's a number of other factors that are worth considering, especially in this study. So a number of people within this study likely experienced periods of famine that would have affected their health status. So even the Great Famine from 1315 to 1317 would have resulted in malnutrition and, you know, even potentially starvation for a number of the individuals that were involved in this study. So malnutrition during childhood and early adulthood can have lasting effects on bone demineralization, which can predispose people to osteoporosis later in life. So it's very possible that this would have increased the risk of fractures that a number of individuals within this research would have experienced. So that's really interesting, because one of the, what I wanted to, to, to ask you was whether you can assess sort of how healthy and robust the general population was by looking at these skeletons. Is, are you able to say anything about that? To a point, we certainly can. Unfortunately, we encounter something called the osteological paradox, which is a problem that unfortunately doesn't seem to have a solution. So an individual that died of the bubonic plague, for example, won't have any evidence of the disease on his on, on their skeleton. So, would it be fair to consider that person healthy, knowing that he died of of a very contagious, infectious disease? Typically, what paleopathologists can recognize are long-lasting chronic diseases, such as tuberculosis, leprosy, or things like fractures, or other types of of diseases that have, you know, long-term effects rather than acute diseases, for example. So we certainly can do our best, but at the same time, an individual that has a number of fractures or conditions could also be considered a survivor, which indicates that he was robust enough to fight off and maybe survive the plague or survive with tuberculosis for 10 or 20 years before expiring. So it, it gets a bit complicated when we start to look at pathology on bones and try to equate it to health. You talked a little bit earlier um, about violence uh, and the possibility of interpersonal violence. Um, how far are you able to assess that? How can how how can you tell whether someone has been the victim of an accident versus uh, some sort of assault? 
the answer is, I suppose, that we can't always tell. So we are always cautious in our interpretations of things like violence um, because fractures occur for a lot of different reasons. There are certainly a number of injuries that we can state with some confidence were the result of interpersonal violence. Weapon injuries, for example, are a really good example of this. Certainly, interpersonal violence existed during the medieval period, and we did find some evidence for what we believe to be interpersonal violence in this paper. Looking at the pattern of skeletal trauma is essential to be able to say whether or not interpersonal violence occurred. There are fractures that are more likely to be associated with interpersonal violence than others. For example, we get uh, injuries to the skull, for example. So anywhere on the head or face, these are more likely to be the result of interpersonal violence than other types of fractures. So we mentioned spiral fractures before. Spiral fractures, specifically in the lower leg, are very unlikely to be the direct result of violence, although, of course, it is possible. So given the patterning, it's possible that these injuries were sustained as the result of prolonged intimate partner violence. But again, fractured mandibles can also occur as as a result of a fall or an accident. Uh, they can they certainly do occur in modern times in automobile crashes or bicycle accidents, these types of things. But in women, typically, any broken facial bones are usually a red flag for interpersonal, often domestic violence. So I'm getting a sense, and, and maybe you can uh, uh, confirm or deny, but that I'm getting a sense from what you're saying that uh, medieval society in Cambridge was was fairly rough and ready. Uh, people were liable to get injuries, and they were liable to get injuries that from occupational hazards that uh, that perhaps uh, modern health and safety standards might uh, might uh, prevent. Uh, and there is some level of violence, but it's it's quite hard for you to 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 be clear about that. Is that a is that a reasonable summation of uh, of where you're at? I would say that is that is probably an accurate summary of of what we have found so far. I think it's also worth mentioning that in this study we had substantially more older adult individuals that had evidence for skeletal trauma and this is again largely explained by biological factors so like age related bone loss for example which again is something that does need to be considered in the context of the medieval period and certainly osteoporosis would have been more likely for those individuals that would have had poor nutrition in childhood. And I think it's worth remembering here that all of these individuals survived pretty much pretty much every individual in this study survived the injury that they sustained without access to modern medical care in any way. I think these findings speak to the resilience of the medieval population. That's, I mean, I find that really interesting, that, that that last point you made, because one of the things you assume with a fracture is that the it's not only the risk of 
you know the well the, the the damage of the actual physical injury, but it's the uh, the risk of infection consequent of that. And and you always mm-hmm. think, well, the, one of the problems for with medieval medicine is is that they didn't have a an effective way of dealing with infection. But from what you're saying, the infections didn't didn't kill people. No, they didn't. Um, So a number of individuals did have evidence of bone infections that were likely the direct result of of their fracture. So if you would have experienced an open fracture, more than likely you would have had bacteria get in through the wound and you would have lived with that infection for the rest of your life or it would have resolved on its own. Certainly a number of individuals in these a number of individuals in this study did have chronic long-lasting infections that they suffered until the day they died. That was Jenna Dittmar. Her research was published recently in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. It's an open access report if you'd like to read it, and you can find a link in the show notes. If you want to know more about violence in the Middle Ages, do go to historyextra.com and check out a feature by Professor Hannah Skoda on that subject. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Lucy Worsley on The Blitz.